there's so much discourse around abstraction and quilting. The thing that I try really hard to keep at the forefront of my mind when I think about quilts, especially quilts made by marginalized communities, which I am not a part of, is that my job as an art historian is to think about the moments of artistic choice and how we really have to give those artists the respect of that agency. A year ago, when I first sat down with quilt historian Jess Bailey, a.k.a. Public Library Quilts, we discussed the role of storytelling in art history, the importance of feeling seen and recognized in the world around us, and why Jess would rather her quilts be considered sturdy rather than soft. Today, Jess and I catch up for an episode of Backstitch to share our favorite quilt book recommendations, personal stories from recent quilting bees we both attended, and then I share a vulnerable moment when Jess indirectly helped me understand one of my own blind spots that I had around the improv quilters of Jeed's Bend. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my good friend, Jess Bailey. <laughs> Y'all, we're trying to start this show, but Jess and I just keep laughing. So we'll just start with this. <laughs> Jess, thank you so much for joining me again. Hello. Uh, it's so good to see you. We were just saying that before I saw your face on the screen, it felt like it had been a year and it has been like, I think, 14 months technically since we recorded wow. our first conversation on Seamside, which is episode five, if folks haven't heard it. It felt like it had been a long time. But then when your face popped up on my screen, it was just like joy rekindled. And like we were we're right back connected. And it's so good to see you again. It's really good to see you, Zach. I always feel like we're on the same page somehow. And it's really good. Good to talk. That's one of the cool things about let's just say age and time and how it can work that like now Seamside has been around long enough that we can circle back. And I'm so excited to hear what kind of projects you're working on these days, what kind of evolutions of thought and practice you've had over mm. the last many months and just touch base with you. Yeah, it's been a big year. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing all about it. I mean, when I think of our first conversation, one of the things that I was so interested to talk to you about, I mean, the reason I originally reached out to you was because as a researcher, you are your own archive of these beautiful <laughs> stories. And I still think to this day about the last indigenous queen of Hawaii mm -hmm. making quilts out of her out of her wardrobe, right? And that was a story that you shared with us. You got some more stories for us? Have you run across any new favorites oh, in the last year? Zach, you knew I was going to bring a quilt story for you. How could I not? I've got a good story for you. Mm, once upon a time, in a small village in rural England in the late 19th century. Imagine that this is a small village sustained by agricultural workers. And these farmers, these farmhands, they are the worst paid agricultural laborers anywhere in England. They have the poorest pay. And the late 19th century is when we see sort of the vibrancy of labor unions arise in England. And these workers decide that, you know, they are in such a dire situation, right? They're ending up, you know, having to make choices about which of their children they send to workhouses so that the children can simply have food on the table that day. So they're making impossible choices. And they decide to go on strike. And this is part of a set of movements across the country that are really key to the development of labor unions more broadly. And 
while they're on strike, they face a key challenge, which is that the English government has actually legalized unionization, but outlawed picketing. And this is really sort of a sneaky, sneaky move, right? It's really effective. And it's not dissimilar to what we see happening in, you know, the government in England today, where certain very key things about protesting are being attacked in the legal system, which is you know, making collective action for social justice really difficult and really scary. And so this very strategic outlawing of picketing is really hampering the union movement and these agricultural families trying to get food on their table. And we're not quite sure exactly what happens, but 16 women in Ascot, in this tiny little town, decide that they've had enough. And Records vary. Some people say they start picketing. Some people say they were intimidating some of the replacement workers who were brought in to replace the workers on strike. But whatever goes down, it's not anything violent. It's not anything major. And a local magistrate overreacts and he sentences the 16 women to up to 10 days of imprisonment and hard labor. And this is such a sort of overblown reaction, especially because, you know, the women age from, you know, 16 to 45, two of them have nursing babies who they're allowed to take into prison with them, that the incident makes national news. And suddenly, the way that labor unions and strike action is being discussed in relationship to these 16 brave women becomes really productive and people start to sympathize with the union cause and start to learn things about the extreme poverty in this village and, you know, the real plight of agricultural workers. And fascinatingly, when the women get out of prison after their 10 days of hard labor, <laughs> trying to keep their babies with them, they decide to make a quilt. And this is known as the Ascot Martyrs Quilt. And, you know, it's a, it's a typical late 19th century hexagon paper piece, kind of grandmother's, you know, flowers quilt. And it's really wonderful. And it seems like they probably made it out of clothes and discarded home textiles and kind of whatever they had around. And they collectively made it. And one of the reasons that we remember these women who participated in supporting their local union is because the quilt survives. And today the quilt's on display in the People's History Museum in Manchester. And it just makes me think about this connection that we talked about last time of quilts and archives and quilts and the historical record, because I think there's a lot of different reasons why they made this quilt. I think one reason they made this quilt was that they had a really traumatizing phase of their, you know, their life. They'd suddenly been thrown into, you know, incarceration. They'd gone through this legal battle. They were in the headlines in national news. So I think they must have gathered as a group to sort of process what was happening uh, to them and what had happened to them through cloth. But I have a hunch that they understood that to make a quilt is to make a multi-generational object, right? And quilters know that our quilts will survive and our quilts will be carried forward and passed down and that stories will be told as our quilts are draped on laps and tucked in the edges of beds. And so I think to me, there's a sort of deep awareness in their action that maybe they had their moment of fame in the newspaper, but 
their participation in the union action probably wouldn't be remembered in the same way that male union leaders would be put on pedestals and remembered, you know, as time passed in this kind of normative cycle of history. And so I think their awareness of how a quilt can archive community action is really inspiring. Are you able to get us an image of that quilt? I am. Thanks to the wonderful, wonderful friend Fee at Gresham Hall, which is the Workhouse Museum, and is how I heard about this quilt story. So I will get you an image. Thank you, Fee. Thank you. Because I know I want to see it. I know folks will too. One thing that has happened for me since we last talked is I got to take part in my first ever communal quilting bee. And so I'm thinking as I'm listening to that story about how it felt to sit around that quilt frame with friends, with people that I I had known from as a the folk school for my residency there. Mm. And these are people I had known for quite a while, but there's something really special about getting around a quilt frame and everyone, you have to sit pretty close to one another in order to do the mm. quilting. You have to get your your face, you have to get it close to the quilt. And it creates this real kind of sacred circle, this, this special mm. space that people enter into together. And we went from talking about the light topics of the day to like Mm. deep matters of the heart within like five minutes. And I just think that's part of the magic of quilting and part of what I'm sure happened when those women were also working on the quilt after they got out of incarceration was part of the processing and the storytelling that you were talking about. And then also thinking, let's get this story down so that it can Mm. be told again. And you being a good steward of stories just retold it and shared it. So thank you. I also participated in my first in-person quilting me since we last talked and I thought of you and yeah, it was really wonderful, especially because my friend Anna's mother used to run quilting bees that she grew up around. And so Anna decided it was about time we revived her mother's legacy in that. And so we all got together after work recently and started working on some quilts. I love it. And what quilts are you working on? Oh my goodness. Well, you know, I'm always like, I'm always working on several quilts. I've got, let's see, I've got a quilt behind me, which is a quilt for an old friend. We used to live in the same small apartment building and she lived above me and had a balcony that was always full of pots and her garden. And it was a kind of sanctuary after work. We worked at the same office at a university and would go back to our little apartment and, and sit out on her balcony. And so it's a the quilt in honor of those those good days. And was the design of the balcony somehow an inspiration for the design of the quilt? It was, yeah. The quilt, I actually don't know what this pattern is called. I've asked some friends and we're kind of, we got to find a good one for it. But um, it is a kind of, I don't know how you describe it, kind of like a lattice, sort of almost basket weave kind of strips. The blocks are kind of, have sort of crosses in them. So yeah, to me, that kind of evoked the greenery and the flowers and pots on her small balcony. Yeah, I can also see maybe the rails or something. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't know what your friend's balcony yeah, looks no, like, but I can, I can yeah. see that. Yeah. And when we talked last time, I believe you were just finishing, but probably couldn't talk about a baby quilt for a friend of yes. yours. The baby has arrived. <laughs> Welcome to the world, baby. Welcome to the world. Yes, that quilt is in good use, living a good life. Yeah, I think I had a few quilt secrets then, and both of those quilts are with their families, and those families have had good years. Are you working on any special quilts now? Well, I just finished a really special one for a friend, and I think mm, this one sort of reminds me a lot about 
how we spoke last time about the sturdiness of quilts and that word in our quilting practice and our thinking as quilters. And so the quilt that I have in front of me right now, I'm about to mail it to my friend, Sarah. Sarah and I met as kids. We then lost touch. We re-met by chance at a university co-op. Then we kind of lost touch again and really kind of rekindled our friendship during the pandemic totally remotely. We were living in different countries and we started speaking a lot about kind of, you know, different aspects of craft and family and art and traditions and legacy. And Sarah shared with me that she had a set of two pillowcases that her great grandmother had carried with her from Germany to the United States when she fled the Holocaust. And Sarah was going through the process of sort of reconnecting to some of these German Jewish legacies and thinking about Jewish diaspora in her life. And Sarah asked if I would take the pillowcases back with me to England and make a quilt about her great grandmother. And so the pillowcases, the embroidery is very colorful and has these sort of floral motifs in it. And so I took that as inspiration for the front of the quilt, which is made from plant dye. Some of the plant dye is from Sarah herself. Sarah's an amazing gardener. So it felt like the surface of the quilt, the front of the quilt was a lot about Sarah and the back was a lot about her great-grandmother. And in discussing this, Sarah suggested that, you know, she pay me in kind with a home knit sweater, which I'm currently wearing because I haven't taken it off since it arrived two weeks ago, even though it's like 60 degrees out. (laughs) But I'm very attached to the sweater now, which is absolutely a very special way to feel loved by a childhood friend. So this is my latest latest quilt and quilt barter of a quilt about a great grandmother for a sweater about our childhood. That's beautiful. And for folks who can't see the sweater, I'm seeing <laughs> long cables running down the arms. Are those mm-hmm. cables on the chest panel? I don't know. They are. I think so. Oh. Yeah. It's gorgeous. And it looks so, it's a very beautiful. thick sweater. It looks it nice. It is. And it's a really big hug. Yeah. That's a good trade-in kind. I like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, but let it be noted that you still have the sweater and the quilt. Somehow, I know. I... <laughs> somehow you got the better end of this bargain. I did get the better end of this bargain. Jess, I recently ran across a new favorite book, and I wonder if Ooh. you've you probably you you know all the books, <laughs> but do you wow. know this one, A Communion of the Spirits? Yes, Roland mm. L. Freeman. Such I a good book. I am loving this book for so many reasons that first of all i just want to say that it weighs like five pounds in my hand it's like a bag of sugar because every page is a full color print of quilts but it it highlights roland freeman is was pardon mr freeman i don't know if you're still alive traveled the country as a photo documentarian documented lives of african-american quilters and their work and I bring this book into this conversation, one, because I know you love books. And if you didn't know this book, I want to make sure you did know of it. (laughs) But flipping through here, one thing that stands out to me is that there seems to be a higher than typical number of male quilters featured Mm. in this book. Like, look at at this sweetheart right here, Albert Sams. Oh, we love him. put this in the show notes. Oh, he's darling. So it's it's super early 90s. It's the perfect pose. Early nineties, he's got the quilt draped over his shoulder, the hand just gently splayed on top to hold it down. We can't have the you know quilt blow away in the wind or anything. But mm. flipping through the book, it's just like I for me love mm. seeing that. I love seeing while I've never been comfortable using like the hashtags like male quilter and stuff like that, 
Yeah. Everybody quilts. Everybody quilts. But it does my soul good to see him here. Mm. So I'm glad you already know about this book because it really is. It's a treat that I'm working my way through. That's a wonderful one. If folks are looking for it, I would suggest either looking up the website WorldCat, where you can check what your lo- what library collections within a certain mile radius of you have and don't have, or just checking for used copies, because I do think it's out of print, unfortunately. It is. And I, and I got a used copy, but it's worth it if you can track it down. I promise you it's worth it. And you know, shout out to Dr. Carolyn Maslumi, who put mm. this book on my radar when we were having dinner after one of her talks at the International Quilt Museum. She knows what she's talking about. Oh, she does. She does. I just listened to one of her lectures that's recorded on YouTube from the International Quilt Museum. I, I think it was from a few years back when she did it. But she just talks through a few of her favorite quilts. She says all her quilts in the collection are her favorite quilts, but a few of her favorite quilts from her collection. And it's a really wonderful lesson if folks are looking for an avenue into her thinking about quilts. I'm wondering, are there any quilt books you're excited about? Anything Ooh. that we might not know about? Yes. Oh, it's going to be a good year for quilt books. Yeah, I know a few about a few quilt books being being born that I cannot speak of, but two that I can speak of that I think are really going to be treasures. One that comes out, well, I guess this month in June of this year, it's called Stitching Love and Loss, and it's by a professor of art history named Lisa Gale Collins, and I I have heard really good things. I'm eagerly waiting for my copy to arrive in the mail. And then another quilt history book that's going to come out a little bit more towards the end of the year, I think maybe in October, is Janekin Smucker's a wonderful professor of social history, her new book, which is called A New Deal for Quilts, and looks at some of those amazing photographs that we were discussing last time we talked. So the book is going to be gorgeously illustrated with that imagery from the New Deal era, American sort of photographers traveling the country, taking photos of quilts. And I was very fortunate to get to read a draft of that book. And so I'm eagerly anticipating folks getting to have that in their laps on their coffee tables very soon. It's going to be a really good read. What about your book, Many Hands Make a Quilt? How's is that? That's still out in the world. That's still going well? It is still out in the world. Yeah, I was really honored. A few months ago, I walked into the Royal Academy for their current exhibition about art from the American South that includes a lot of quilts. And there it was for sale in the bookshop. And so that was really an honor to have that. That and it was accompanied in the bookshop by my dear friend Charbrian Plummer's zine, Diasporic Threads, also published by Common Threads Press. So I was overjoyed to see our little books, Living the Good Life, accompanying an exhibition here in London. Yeah, people need to read those stories. They do. Since you invoked <laughs> our friend Charbrion, I I want to share with you something that's happened that mm. you were involved in indirectly mm. in the last year since we last talked. You, you've been my teacher in a way in the last year, oh. in a way that I'm very grateful for. So this is a little bit vulnerable, but I had mm. a flub in the middle of a workshop several months ago in which we were talking about the G's Ben quilts. And Mm -hmm. I was just trying to speak, you know, plainly and, you know, from the heart. And I implied that one of the reasons that G's Ben Quilt's improv design is so notable stemmed from poverty, Mm. which I now understand to be a very problematic situation, Mm -hmm. largely thanks to someone from the workshop reached out to you 
got your feedback on it and they shared that feed some of that feedback with me. Mm. And I thought it might be helpful for folks listening if you could give us a bit of a recap of what what your words were in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's so much discourse around abstraction and quilting. And, you know, the thing that I try really hard to keep at the forefront of my mind when I think about quilts, especially quilts made by marginalized communities, which I am not a part of, is that my job as an art historian is to think about the moments of artistic choice and how, you know, those moments of artistic choice certainly often live in relationship with systems of oppression, sometimes horrific oppression. But when we're speaking about artistic choice, we really have to give those artists the respect of that agency to say that, you know, the way we would speak, for example, about a canonical white male abstract painter would not be to first reference his biography or the circumstances of his birth, right? We would simply first honor that artist's agency of choice to choose abstraction in a moment or to choose figuration in a moment, right, to express themselves. And so we want to give that respect of agency and choice to a group of artists like the Guise Bend Quilters and say that, you know, well, of course, materials and materiality is a wonderful way to access how we think about and how we speak about art, it's not the only way. And these artists are making incredible choices that are artistic choices for abstraction in one moment or the use of a folk pattern in another. And so we want to center our conversation about them in that honoring. That's some beautiful wisdom. Thank you for being so generous with that, for teaching me in that moment, even though it wasn't directly. And <laughs> those words have really... I've been carrying them with me ever since. Mm. Uh, and I, we live and we learn and we learn Absolutely. through engaging. Right? Absolutely. And I think we also learn so much by honoring the black people and often black women in these moments who are doing the really hard labor of even just raising their hand to say, hey, this is a problem that takes so much labor, emotional labor, practical labor, intellectual labor. And I think that's something I would really love the quilt world to be more conscious of is, you know, A, when are Black women quilters and Black women quilt researchers teaching us things and sharing things and sharing the generosity of their labor? And when are they, when is that labor specifically, you know, about them calling us into a more aware conversation and calling out the harm that we might be unintentionally causing? And so that, you know, I think really needs to be honored in the conversations that we white quilters have about how we're going to evolve our conversations and our own presence in this beautiful quilt world. Yeah, because my mind and my heart still goes out to the person who raised her voice and spoke up in the moment in the workshop. And I just think this person just came to have a mm. good time, just to yeah. learn some new sewing techniques or whatever, right? And in the middle of all of that, she had a hard decision to make and she had to put that to the side to step up for something she felt was more important. And I, I feel bad, of course, for having put anybody in that situation. I'm grateful she said something. And I hope that if we're ever in conversation again, she never has to say anything ever again mm -hmm. to me, you know, that we can have just a, a nice time sewing together. 
And I also wanted to say, speaking of gratitude, I also want to bring back Charbriand Plummer, who was another person that got reached out to in this moment and offered some really sage words. So thank you to both of you. Charbriand's really wise. No doubt about it. Well, Jess, what parting words do you have for us? I wonder if there's anything coming up that you want folks to be aware of. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I think in the near future, I hope to be sharing more details about two projects that are really special to my heart that I can kind of share snippets of right now. One is actually a project with Charbriand. We're working on collaborating on some public arts programming that we'll be able to share very soon with everyone. And then the other thing is my next quilt fundraiser. Every year I try and team up with an activist or a community organizer who I really admire and ask, what can I do for you as a quilter? And I'll usually make a quilt and raffle this quilt um, to raise funds for their community work. So this coming year, I'll be working on a quilt project with an ethnographer and researcher named Ashley J. May, who's currently based in California. And Ashley has been working on a wonderful project about liberation writing for Black children and story times for Black children in her community. And so she brings together a incredible vintage library collection that she's building book by book with a lot of picture books and story books that were specifically written by, you know, often very famous Black female philosophers and liberation writers, you know, that we don't necessarily think of as being children's books, book writers, but actually wrote children's books and really saw that sharing sort of Black liberation philosophies with children was essential. And so this wonderful library collection that she has is something that she shares through story times, often at a very special bookstore in California called the Salt Eaters Bookshop. So this summer, I'll be making two quilts for Ashley, one quilt to raffle that I hope someone in this community will win and it will live with you. And then a second quilt for Ashley to take to story time and spread on the floor and play with the kids on and be, be a way to hold space for this beautiful library collection that Ashley is creating. So keep your eyes out for some more news about the Kinfolk Library Quilt Fundraiser later this year. And so Jess, what's the best way then for people to keep in touch with you and make sure they know when all these things are happening? Is it email? Is it Instagram? You can find me on Instagram at Public Library Quilts, or you can also find a sign up for my newsletter, which I at some point promised to actually start. But you can sign up for it on my website, which is publiclibraryquilts.com. And they will be sending out updates about the fundraiser through that email list. So many good things. Mm. Jess, thank you so much. It was great speaking today, Zach. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Now, if there's somebody you'd like to recommend to be a guest on this show, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me directly at Zach at ZachFoster.com. Just remember Zach is spelled Z-A-K. And why? I don't know. You have to ask my mama. I look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, take care, sow something good, and I hope to see you around the nook.